Welcome to the Gospel Addict Podcast. I'm Greg Bryan. And I'm Jim Resky. We're gospel addicts because we believe the gospel of Jesus isn't just good news, it's the best news ever. We're addicted to the gospel because it doesn't just start us out in the Christian life, it is the Christian life. Join us as we look at the Bible through the lens of the gospel. Thanks so much for listening. You're listening to the Gospel Addict Podcast. On today's episode, it's my privilege to interview Marty Solomon, the author of a new book titled Asking Better Questions of the Bible. In the book, Marty explains that our modern and limited view of Scripture has impacted the way that we live out our faith, since we often don't understand the original context the Bible was written. Marty is a theologian, the president and director of discipleship, for Impact Campus Ministries, and the creator and executive producer of the BEMA podcast. He and his wife, Rebecca, live in Cincinnati with their two children. Welcome to the show, Marty. And is there anything else you'd like our audience to know about you? Man, uh, you you nailed all the good stuff. My family, my wife, my kids. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's all the, that's all the good stuff. Other than that, I'm just a normal old person like everybody else. I don't, have a whole lot of letters after my name, but I have a love for the Bible, and I think that probably matches a whole lot of people that listen to your podcast. Well, listen, I want to maximize our time together, so let's just dive in. What prompted you to write this book? I, you know, I have always loved to create tools or resources that help us have better readings of the Bible. Um, I don't know if there's ever been an age where we have mastered the text and mastered the ability to read the scriptures. I think it's always going to be this thing that we have to diligently stay on top of. And I, I think for me, I have watched us, we use the Bible to prop up systems that either make us comfortable or keep us in power or provide us influence. And we kind of use the Bible as this tool to prop up those realities rather than reading the Bible as this thing that's meant to provoke us, all of us, no matter who the reader, um, whether it's people trained to speak for God or whether it's people that believe or don't believe, or no matter who we are coming to the scriptures, this should be a thing that always is this provocative, life-changing, transformative practice. So let's talk a little bit about the journey uh, that you are on, your journey in understanding the importance of asking better questions of the Bible. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I went through, I mean, we were, we were, it, it's weird, this word deconstruction everybody's using today. We were using it back in, you know, 2000 as post-modernity was coming into the world. We were using the word in a different way back then, not completely unrelated, but just slightly different. But I went through shortly after that, you know, early, like 2004, 2005, I was going through some, what we would call today, my own deconstruction phase. Like I had a faith that wasn't working for me. I was, I was coming out of a deep reformed uh, theological tradition. I was trained on the other end of the theological spectrum. I had felt called and led to go to a Bible college, like, which very unreformed. And in the midst of all of this, like none of the categories, none of the handles, they were good. I'm thankful for them, but they weren't they they weren't getting the job done for me when I, when it came to the questions, the big questions I had about life, the questions that my my students had in my youth group, the people in my church had, and I just I, I was 
I was despairing and somebody handed me some new voices that were reading the Bible and talking about the Bible in a new way. At the time, I didn't know what it was, but really it was people that were just reading the Bible through the lens of history and context. And that opened up a whole new set of questions once I learned what was going on. And those better questions led to better readings, which led to a more robust faith. I mean, the dominoes just kept falling. And I just feel like I've gotten to know Jesus and been able to help other people get to know Jesus and experience that resurrected Christ in their own lives so much better when we ask some better questions. In the book, you say that relying on our Western thinking as we read and interpret scripture is like playing the song of scripture with only the left hand. Can you explain what this means? Yeah. For anybody that knows like uh, how to play piano, they, if you have even just some basic training in piano, piano lessons, you know that in your left hand, you're really laying down like a, like a, a bass chordal structure. It's the foundation of the song in your right hand. You're playing what really becomes more the melody and kind of brings the song together. But if you can imagine playing the piano with your right hand tied behind your back and only playing the left-handed part, it, you could, you could play that perfectly. And the song would sound pretty weird on a, Unless you had inside information, I don't think you'd recognize the song. If you played it with only the right hand, you'd probably recognize the song, but it would be lacking something. And so realizing that there are these two worlds, the Eastern and the Western world, when we bring them together to read the Bible, you get a much more colorful, deep, uh, robust, I love that word, um, reading of the of the scriptures that's much more full of life. And I do believe, I love the illustration because I think it... it it does emphasize the fact that there is a hand that enables us to recognize the song. There is a hand that plays the melody, and it's not the hand that we wake up every morning and are used to. It's the, the Western world is beautiful. It's very helpful, but we have to have this awareness that there's another hand at play. There's another worldview. There's another, there's an Eastern perspective that's really going to help us recognize the song that that God's given us in the scriptures. I really like that illustration. You have another illustration that's similar. You talk about if you're in a room and you're on the outside of that room looking in a window, talk about that illustration. That's a good one too. Yeah, that was where I first learned it. I mean, uh, so my one of my teachers was Ray Vanderlaan and he was at uh, one of my, the first speaking events I can remember. Uh, that's how he opened up the weekend. He said, imagine you're, you know, we were in an auditorium and he said, imagine you're you know, at the back of an auditorium, maybe you stood looking through that window for 20 years and you know every, because for 20 years, you've seen it through that window. You can tell me everything about what you can see and what you can see is accurate. It's not that you have the wrong view, but then somebody takes you and by the hand and leads you to this other window on the other side of the auditorium. You would see things for the first time you've never seen before, uh, you know, the a garbage can hiding around the corner you never saw or this, you know, that that view that lets you peek behind the curtain of the stage or whatever it might be. And and he said, that's what it's like when you realize that there's a whole nother perspective. It's not that what you had was wrong. It's that this it's that there's a whole there. Are, it, it was incomplete. There were things that you didn't even realize until somebody allowed you to see it and somebody showed it to you. And that's that's why I think your book is so important. And I, I really hope people um uh, take read it. Um, so why do you think it's unavoidable that our own cultures and contexts will influence how we interpret scripture? And can you share an example of how you see this happening among Christians today? Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it, it is unavoidable. And 
And we have to give ourselves a load, like a ton of grace with this to, this as well. Like it is unavoidable. We're going to read the scriptures through our own current context, the water that we're swimming in, the current events, the cultural questions that we're asking. We bring those to any reading of the, of the Bible. Having an awareness of that allows us to like put those, not get rid of them, just put them on the shelf as we engage in exegesis so that we can like look at the Bible and understand the conversation that was taking place between author and audience. And then when we've understood that inspired conversation between Paul and the church in, in Philippi, between, you know, Moses and the people that he, you know, the book of Deuteronomy or whatever, whatever those conversations might, now I can take off the shelf my cultural experiences, my immediate context, and then I can put the two together rather than letting it influence the way that I'm reading it. And man, a, a, an example, that's a good question. Um, what's an example of how we um, well, man, the world we live in right now, such a socio-political bifurcated landscape where we're all just this tribe, that tribe, this side, that side. And I think we bring that to the scriptures and I, and I think we project that, well, is it this or is it that? And we give ourselves these two options that we try to fit so many of these biblical passages into. And, and, and the biblical passage itself is talking about something entirely different, some third, fourth, 16th option that we just we're not even engaging because we're forcing it into the two categories that the right or the left, the conservative, the progressive, the whatever those things might be. Uh, I think we do this without realizing it and unintentionally. That's good. That's good. Let's talk a little bit about some of the different ways of thinking between the Eastern or Hebrew mindset and the Western or Greek mindset, especially as it relates to uh, things like words, numbers, you know, uh, truth, sin. Um, give us some examples of that because I, I find that very insightful because we don't realize it. And I love the example of the water. And I, I, I wonder if you've heard that illustration where the two little young fish are swimming along one day and an older fish swims <laughs> yeah. by and says, hey, how's the water? And then, the, you know, the, the guy swims by and they're swimming along and they're like, what the heck is water? Yeah. And it's like, you, we don't even understand <laughs> the culture that yes. we live in. We, we, we're not even aware of it. So yeah. um, that's what I really like about what your book does. It kind of makes us helps us understand we we do come from a western mindset but talk a little bit about the you know the original bible was written you know with you know in the hebrew or eastern mindset so when you know like like use some of the things i mentioned numbers words truth sin it, it yeah share some of that yeah, absolutely. And it makes it concrete. Like we've been talking about this in the abstract to begin with, but this question enables us to make it a little bit more concrete as far as what it looks like. So things like words. Um, our Western world is built on on the idea of precision, to be able to use words to communicate something precisely, with accuracy, with nuance, to slice through complexity. And so you have in the English language that you and I are using right now, we have some you know, depending on how people want to count it, 400,000, 600,000 words that we use in our modern English today, about half a million words. The biblical Hebrew has about 8,000. So what that means is you have so much, one rabbi I've learned from explains it almost as if like it's a skyscraper. Like if you're buying real estate in New York, there's no room to go out. There's no more land left. So the only way to build is up. You have to build depth. 
Um, and so Hebrew has in one word, you have a, a thousand ideas packed into one word. And that's, they do that by, by making sure that a word is an, is an image. And so like when you think of the word shepherd, well, it's connected to the word to speak, but it's also connected to the word to lead. It all comes from the same root word and you're able to pack man, a thousand images into one word, but it also helps shape the way you understand the concept that the word speaks to or numbers that you bring up. Uh, numbers for us are just static, quantitative, like that is, I love numbers because it's like, well, how else would you understand a number? A number is like purely quantitative. It's literally the definition of quantity. And yet for the Eastern thinker, it's quality because these are qualitative ideas. When they see five, they don't see a quantitative number, a quantity. They see Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They see the five books of Moses. They see and they they speak and they communicate through images and pictures. Um, and, and that gives depth and color. It lacks, at times, the precision that we want as Westerners, but it, it adds depth and, and just brilliance to the things that are being communicated and what the text is able to do. That's great. I know. Um, and I can't remember if this is from the, your book or I've listened to a couple of your podcasts. You, you talk about the, the word eternal life and how Westerners, oh, yeah. we, we cannot in our mind, when we think of eternal life, we, we always have to think about life after death, but yes. in the Hebrew mind, it's different. Absolutely. And again, they love qualitative ideas and we love quantitative ideas, things that we can put on a linear scale, understand through a scientific worldview, but they have this qualitative. So the word eternal life, even in the Hebrew, olam ava, or when we get to the Greek and you have these Jewish writers, these Eastern writers using a precise language. See, that's where it gets really fun. Like people often say, okay, Hebrew is one thing, but the New Testament is written in Greek. Yes, but through East by Eastern thinkers. So they're now using a precise language to communicate Eastern ideas. And that's where it gets really fun because when they talk about things like a eternal life and they use words like aeonios zoe is what it is in the Greek. Well, they could use words like bios. Bios is, that's where we get the word biology. Like that's quantitative physical linear life with a beginning and an end, but they use Zoe and Zoe is this qualitative, powerful word, Aeonios. Well, there's other words they could use if they wanted to talk about the length of life. And yet they use Aeonios to talk about this resonant, transcendent, qualitative reality. And they pull these two words together to talk about eternal life, which just changes entirely what we hear when it's either about going to heaven when I die, or it's about experiencing heaven now and forever. Um, and and lots of people have written about that. Um, and and that's a that's a really good thing for us to be aware of and dive into. You also bring out the fact that when we talk about concepts like sin, because we're in a Western culture, we are so individualistic. We always think of it as our sin, uh, or yes. or my sin, um, where. In the eastern, uh, the eastern idea is that it's a community. It's 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 our sin. Anything you want to add about that? That's that's very insightful. Yeah, and and not that it's an either or because it's always a both and. It's just interesting to be aware of where our defaults are. We would always think personal sin first, 
And then like, oh, yeah, and then we can also sin as a group or a community or a nation. It's not that we would deny the reality of corporate sin, but we don't think of it first. In their world, they flip those. They think corporate sin first, and then they think about how their personal um, – I was just listening to a Jewish teacher this morning talk about uh, translating Genesis 43-44, the story of Joseph. And it's so interesting how they – the brothers – Joseph, they talk about sin. It's very corporate in the way that they talk about it. It's very us. It's something that we have done. Uh, we've taken part in our father, you know, our father and then our brother. And there's just so much we discussion because that's the Eastern mindset where the Western world was built on personal responsibility and rugged individualism. And and that those though that's a great example of being aware of what we bring to the Bible when we read it. Because if we're assuming our Western ideas, we're missing what the what the author and the audience is assuming in the biblical conversation. Yeah, and, and our Western culture overflows into our worship services too, where the songs that we sing are all about God bless me, God, you know, they're yep. they're not community oriented. Yeah. Um, which can drive you nuts at times. Um, yeah, we've gotten we, better over the last 10, 20 years than we were when I was in Bible college, that's for sure. I know every every song when I was in Bible college was open the eyes of my heart and me and Jesus and I, me and me and me and I and I and Jesus and God and I. And and we've gotten a little better at that. I think we've grown in our awareness of what we've done uh, to a lot of our worship music. But yeah, you'll still watch that worldview sneak in all the time. Yeah. Well, what would you say to somebody who says... Uh, that the Bible has no relevance for today. I would I I would say it's 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 just a myopic, tiny worldview. Um, it it's the other extreme to the fundamentalist Christian worldview that says, "I know everything there is to know. I have all the answers." On the flip side, is a worldview that has reacted to that and said, "Ah, well, the Bible has nothing to." But I don't think it takes much, much time or much awareness for anybody to simply pay attention and go, man, there is a whole lot of stuff going on in this life. And if and if we give the Bible even the slightest benefit of the doubt with even the slightest bit of tools, like just just finding a tour guide that helps us just dig into the literary. I mean, we're we're dealing it's really fascinating to, to think about the fact we're dealing with a book that was written, you know, thousands of years ago. And here we are still translating it discussing the nuances of those translations, putting it into a language that we can engage today, wrestling with what that means. Like, I still think of how many people show up for the Society of Biblical Literature conference every year. I mean, the Bible is still this fascinating, fascinating, fascinating thing. And so, so yeah, I think, I think to realize it doesn't take many tools to start to dig underneath a surface layer reading of the Bible in one direction or the other and go, man, there is so much here and, and so much relevance and so nuanced and so complex. And what we do with this is important and what people have done with it is important. And yeah, I, it, yeah, I, that's, that would be my response to that. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't know if you're like me, both of us have been in campus ministry um, 
usually when a young person, especially a young person, when they say something to you like the Bible's not relevant, my next question is, have you read it? Sure. And most of the time they haven't. And so it's so easy to say something's not relevant, but you've never even read it. So I think that's kind of interesting. Well, what would what would be a, a first practical step um, to helping somebody understand how to ask better questions of the Bible? Uh, well, just being like the one of the most foundational questions. This is slightly cold and cerebral uh, way to approach this. I usually don't like to answer questions that way, but in this regard, like there's a real basic question that starts to splinter into a bunch of other questions. But to ask the question of authorial intent, what I mean by that is, what did the author mean when they wrote this, and what did the audience hear when they heard it? Like that is the most foundational, fundamental question when it comes to asking better questions of the Bible for me. It's a question of hermeneutics. It's not a question that says, what's doctrine say about this? What does my theology tell me about this before I even read this passage? It really tries to put that stuff aside to make sure it's not filtering what I'm hearing in the scriptures. And that fundamental question of when the author of Jonah wrote this prophecy, wrote this book, wrote this message, what did the author of Jonah understand when they were writing it? And what did the original audience of Jonah hear when they heard that for the first time? When I start asking those questions, it will lead me to questions about translation, questions about context, questions about history, literary devices. That fundamental question becomes about a thousand other questions. And with the age of the information age, the internet, Google, BibleGateway.com, Blue Letter Bible, Bible Hub, like we have so many tools at our disposal and, and a whole generation that understands what it means to ask questions and find answers. So it's a beautiful time to be alive and start asking better questions of the Bible. This is great. We're we're ready. Let's do it. It's amazing the resources that are out there. There, there are so many. And, and one of them being uh, the, the podcast that you put together. You say that your readers will learn to read the historical books of the Bible as both inspirational and cautionary tales. What do you mean by this? So uh, there was one quote that I remember reading not long ago where a rabbi said the difference between the way Christians and Jews read the Bible. He said, Christians read the Bible looking for truth. Jews read the Bible looking for meaning. And I really liked that distinction. Because we read the Bible just as a like a document full of facts as Westerners. So to understand that the Bible is meant to, like even when it's telling us a story, it's not telling us a story just so we know that it happened. It, when it tells us a historical tale, it's not just telling us a, a historical tale so that we can know the details of what took place or what transpired, the facts historically. It's putting those facts together in the story in such a way that it does something to us as a reader. We are provoked and changed and transformed. So to understand the Bible is, is never there just to report on the details, but it's there to inspire or to be a cautionary tale, to warn me about the dangers of imperial lust and what it does to the human heart or what it, you know, there's just so many things that the Bible's always doing something underneath the surface. It's inviting me to become a better leader or a better follower or whatever those things might be, it's it's asking me to reflect on, it's it's going to inspire me, it's going to provoke me, it's going to alarm me, it's going to disturb me, it's going to keep me up at night. 
this is what the Bible does to us. And and when we go in expecting that, looking for that, knowing that that's the intent, I don't settle for easy like, oh, yeah, I read the story of David and Goliath, and it happened a long time ago in the Valley of Elah. I go, okay, but there's a reason why this story was told. So why am I going to be different after reading this story? Yeah, share some. Do you have some some of your favorite examples, or uh, can you share, you know, when this started really kind of clicking for you? Uh, when you started looking at the Bible differently, do you have any like favorite stories, like from the Torah or from the Old Testament, where you, one where of them, you started seeing the layers and? Sure. Yeah. One of them really was the, the reason that came to mind just a moment ago, as I was saying that was David and Goliath was one of those stories where I went, okay, here's a story I've heard forever. Like I've been, I've grown up in church my whole life. I've heard of David and Goliath almost, I'm sure every year when I was a child in Sunday school, like I was just so familiar with that story. And then when somebody started peeling back some of the layers there and went, okay, so we got a story that happened in history. That's great. But why are there five stones? Why is Goliath six cubits tall with a six shekel uh, heavy spearhead and a brother with six fingers? And why is his armor like scales? And all of a sudden, like all these bells and whistles are going off. Why, why does David go down there armed with five stones with the Torah? And why does he put the Torah on Goliath's forehead? And there's a story underneath this story here. And, and when you juxtapose that to Saul who should be more than capable of taking care of this, but we have a shepherd boy going down armed with Torah to defeat... There's a there's subtext to that for sure. Or to take this understanding about numbers and to take them with me into the Gospels and read a story like The Feeding of the 5,000. And I think I had grown up in a Christian world that just went, wow, a miracle happened. Do you believe that a miracle happened? Because a miracle happened. And... Sure, but there's subtext to that. There's 5,000 people that get fed with five loaves and two fish, and there's 12 baskets. Those are all very Jewish numbers, and there's subtext. And then Jesus goes to the other side of the lake and feeds 4,000 people, but there's no Jews living on the other side of the lake. That's all Gentiles. And so the numbers change. It's 4,000 and seven baskets and seven loaves. And so why are the numbers all different? And then when you're like, oh, maybe I'm just making all this stuff up, Jesus gets back in the boat and then tells his disciples, gets kind of gets after them. And the thing he grills them on is the numbers. Like just when you're like, maybe I'm making this stuff up. Maybe I'm projecting this onto the text. Maybe Marty's making up all this Eastern, but Jesus literally gets in the boat and grills them about how many baskets, how many people, how many people and how many baskets. He literally calls their attention to the numbers and says, do you not understand the lesson that I just taught you? And he's not just saying, boy, didn't we have a lot of leftovers? Look at the miracle. He's saying, how many numbers? What were the numbers? There's a lesson there. And, and I just love those are two examples, Old and New Testament, that were just like, man, the color just, there's so much depth. There's so much, there are so many layers to the things that I have always taken for granted. There's so much more to learn. And I find that invigorating. That's, that's awesome. So I have a, I have a bit, I'm uh, studying the life of Jacob right now. And uh, I have a question for you. Just, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. You know how he steals uh, Esau's birthright, 
Mm-hmm. And then at and then at the end of Isaac's life, he steals the blessing. Is there a difference between the birthright and the blessing, or are they the same? Do they overlap? Um, what what are your what are your thoughts there? Yeah, there would be a difference. So the birthright would be his claim to. It's very material. It's his claim to inheritance. It's also more than material. It's he's going to carry on the mission, the legacy, he's going to carry on his dad's name. So that birthright is everything from material inheritance to the legacy that he's going to be called to live out. So when he steals the birthright, what he's really saying is, <laughs> and who knows, Jacob, at that at that young, if he's just motivated by the material, does he actually want, is there something in him that wants more? Like, I don't just want to be the second born son. I want to be the one that's at the front of the line. I want to have dad's approval. Rabbi Foreman's wrote uh, a book, uh, Genesis, a Parashah Companion, where he just did this amazing job pulling apart the family of um, Rebecca and Isaac and Jacob and Esau. And I just thought it was so well done in asking some of these questions. But um, then the blessing, well, that's the, and they see, in a way, this is a good, another good example of East and West. Cause I think in the Western world, like, oh, well, that's just like, those are just kind of like words thrown out right. there, kind of like a prayer, like who really cares? In the Eastern world, those words, like it was Abraham Joshua Heschel that said, words create worlds, um, kind of referring to God speaking creation into existence. But the Jewish world believes there's power in word. So when your dad pronounces a blessing that he's prayed over and he believes he's received from God, those words have power and meaning. And so he not only gets this material, this is what you're going to inherit, he also gets the blessing of, this is what God's going to do through your life, spoken over me by my father. And they are different things, connected in a lot of ways, really kind of the same battle underneath it all, but but two very distinct things that he steals in a lot of ways or, or tricks his dad out of um, in both cases. Right. And as as a Western in the Western mindset, in both of those cases, you think, oh, well, he could just take that back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just undo it. (laughs) Just undo it. Hey, I I messed up. You you deceived me. So you don't get it anymore. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's powerful stuff. Real quickly, do you see any lessons in the life of Jacob? Oh gosh, just so so many. The big one that just always seems to be on the surface is how God continues to use this guy who is such a hot mess. Like of all the the the, the family of God, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, you think of all the patriarchs. If there's one that is the most dysfunctional, at times the most slimy or the most deceptive, at times the most whatever. It's Jacob, and yet Jacob will be the one that gets renamed Israel. Jacob will be the one that we always think of as the father of of, of the nation of God's people. It, he's the one that, and you're just like, golly, choose something else. Like, choose Abraham, choose Isaac for that matter. Choose, but why are we choosing Jacob? And I think there's something in that where God says, I want to use the person who has a fire in their belly and chutzpah and wants to, and they might be a mess. But they are, they're, they're moving, they're going. And I can take and steer somebody that's moving easier than I can light a fire under an Esau to get them going. I would far rather use somebody that just wants to suck all the marrow out of life 
to find the treasure buried in a field to whatever. Like I want, I want that fire and I can, I can mold and shape that fire. And I think there's a lot of us out there that can resonate to w- with that and say, Oh, I, I don't have to have my life all together. Like God wants to use the piece of me that's on fire a little bit for his good and his kingdom, his glory, his purposes, his name. And I think we look at Jacob and go, yeah. And God says, I'm, I'm in, I'm, I'm all the way in on this. Let's go. Yeah. It's like God is saying I can use anybody. And Absolutely. Uh, there's a lesson about God's grace there too, that, um, you know, that he, he didn't choose. And, and we see this in the, in the old Testament, um, they did nothing to deserve um the, the you know god's blessing and uh so it's it's a powerful lesson of grace that's that's great well let's talk let's go back you mentioned the word deconstruction so as you know it's a lot of people are talking about that uh today but can you explain what deconstruction is and why reconstruction is just as important yeah, we, we did an episode on the podcast in session six. Uh, I did it with Reed Dent on deconstruction. And one of the things we talked about in that episode was we used the metaphor of like scaffolding around a house. Like if you can imagine our faith or the thing that God calls us to being this, this home, and, and we're trying to figure this thing out. So we're trying to look at it. So we build all the scaffolding to allow us to look at the roof and appear in the windows at the top floors and whatever that stuff might be. But over the years, that scaffolding becomes less helpful to get the job done. And so you have to take some of that scaffolding down and rebuild new scaffolding. And But some of us end up putting a whole lot of faith in the scaffolding itself, and we forget what's why that scaffolding was there in the first place. And I, I like that metaphor because I have no problems with deconstruction. I know a lot of folks are, and, and I get it. There's There are some people that are- Some people uh, freak out over it. They're like, oh, no. Yeah. And, and there are people that, that, you know, they're, they're not just deconstructing. There's all kinds of intentions behind all. I, I mean, I, I get all that, the nuances and the, but uh, with the person that's with character and integrity and honesty and authenticity, truly asking questions about their faith, taking things apart to look at, okay, now, wait a minute, where does this assumption come from? And where is this built from? And is this truly Jesus or is this medieval Christianity? And, is this really what the scriptures are calling us to, or is this institutionalized religion? And and what are the relationships? That those are all beautiful questions. We have to be able to ask those questions. If our faith can't um, survive people asking those kind of authentic questions, then our faith was never it never had very much value to begin with. But reconstruction is super helpful because at some point you have to take these pieces that you've taken apart and figure out what you're going to do with them. Or this thing just continues to spiral and, and you can deconstruct forever. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but we're all looking for the thing that we're putting back together. So what are the pieces that do make sense? What are the parts that when you you took it apart, you went, oh, well, this, this is actually really good. Don't toss this in the garbage. We need to figure out where to put this and how to reconstruct some of this so that I can get some mileage out of this because this is something that's full of full of Jesus and may maybe get rid of the stuff that it was never supposed to be full of but there's going to be things in the process of deconstruction. We don't toss everything in the garbage. We got to keep something. We're looking for the stuff that we that we need to keep, the stuff that was worth having, you know, 2000 years ago and still worth having today. And then you got to figure out what you do what you do with all of that. And that's the reconstruction phase. So, I guess in part a lot of people have said that's what 
my ministry attempts to do. And I suppose, I, I suppose so. It's not that my intention was ever to guide reconstruction, but hopefully the conversations that we have do enable the work of reconstruction, enables us to take these pieces that are on the table and say, okay, now how how can I use the good and start putting this together in a way that's helpful and useful and start to build on it? I know a big part of your ministry is um, your experiences in the Holy Land. And in our email exchanges, I, I mentioned to you that I'm leading my first group of Americans to the Holy Land at the end of this month. It'll be my third trip to the Holy Land. My first one was a three-week um, uh, kind of class with my Hebrew professor when I was in seminary back in 1990. And believe it or not, mm -hmm. I got to go into the Dome of the Rock and, um, mm -hmm. you know, got, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing. Um, but I'd, I'd love to talk to you about your experiences in the Holy Land and how it shaped your faith and, um do you have any any advice for me or tips for me or maybe start with just what are some one of your favorite one or two of your favorite places when you go to the Holy Land? Or... Well, my favorite places are just so per I'm not I don't know if they'd be the same for everybody else. It's so personal for me to go to Qumran and to learn about the group of people that we've often called the Essenes. I think scholarship now is questioning whether or not we should be calling them Essenes or not. But the sons of Zadok who were gathered at a place like Qumran, compiling the Dead Sea Scrolls, committed to the text. I mean, I just love to go. I mean, I'm built for that. That is my, that is, that, that is the place, that is the lesson that really changed my life and set me on the trajectory that led to everything Bema or this book or anything like that. So I just, I, I love that, that place. I love that lesson and that experience. Um, I love the Galilee if I'm by myself, I love Jerusalem. Don't get me wrong. I hate leading a group of people through Jerusalem. It's so touristy. There's a million places to get lost. I freak out when I'm a leader in Jerusalem. But um, but it's a great place to be able to go to the Kotel, the Western Wall, um, to visit the Herodian, one of my favorite places, the Wool Museum, the Herodian Quarter. Um, it was under construction the last two times I went. And gosh dang it, they need to get that done because I want to get back in there. Uh, it's one of my favorite places to take students. Um, have you been to uh, Mag Magdala yet? You know, I have not been to the newer dig at Magdala. I've been to old Magdala before they found like the new synagogue or any of those kind of things. There, there's so much that happened during COVID and some of it I've been able to find and see, and some of it I haven't gotten to visit yet. Magdala is one I have not wandered into yet. That is, uh, I, I got to go there a year ago and boy, it is oh, yeah. amazing when you think about all that took place there. That yeah. Mary Magdalene, it wasn't her name, Mary Magdalene. She was Mary of Magdala. Yep. She came from Magdala. And so much we might misunderstand about her. Yeah, um, yeah. But I love the Galilee. Man, there's nothing like being out on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and just thinking about all that took place around Galilee. It's 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 a, man, a, a wonderful experience. And 30 years ago, when I went with my Hebrew professor, we stayed in a kibbutz. Um, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, we were able to go and swim in the in, in the in the uh, in the Sea of Galilee, and just uh, just great. So I'm super excited about going. Any any uh, tips, or maybe maybe even sharing some of your experiences with Ray when you went, like kind of uh, any of those aha moments where he kind of like rocked your world um, with an insight about you know following a rabbi or something. 
Well, I can remember, I mean, I can remember standing on top of Mount Arbel and realizing that 70, 80% of GS's ministry happens within what I can look at on top of that mountain, realizing how compact um, really the whole land is, but even just the Galilee itself and how many different people he's interacting with within just an hour or two worth of walk um, was amazing. But I mean, places like wherever Ray would have the opportunity to teach us about doing what the rabbi does and understanding what the world of the Galilee did with following a rabbi, being a disciple to to have these lessons where Ray would do what we felt like was something insignificant. He might walk on for half a mile, turn around and talk about what it meant to follow the rabbi and then make us go back to do this insignificant thing that we didn't think we needed. but he would make us go all the way back and do it again. Um, and he said, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And our American rugged individualism doesn't like that. And he says, you know, this is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we don't follow, like we follow Jesus if it makes sense, if, if I'm comfortable with it, if I decide I want to. He says, that's not discipleship. Discipleship is doing what your rabbi does, no matter what he does, so that you can become just like him. And and just that fire of you know, waking up, waking up every morning with a fire in your belly to want to be just like Jesus. That was one of the most impressing things about my time in the Galilee, especially. Didn't you tell a story about one time a ray, like, there was a fence and you could easily step over the fence, uh -huh. but Ray uh -huh. went under the fence yep. and then everybody else stepped over it. And then he like turned that into a lesson. Yeah. Yep. He crawled under a fence, a barbed wire fence, about 20 feet, 20 yards to our right. The whole fence had fallen down. So we couldn't figure out why we were getting down and crawling underneath the fence and going through all that trouble. He just went over and stepped over the fence and kept on going. And he walked for a good, uh, my, my memory serves me a good three quarters of a mile and then turned around and did a lesson on what it means to follow the rabbi. I said, I'll wait here while you guys go back to the fence and I want you to crawl underneath it like I did. And that whole lesson was a setup for us to say, when the rabbi does something, you do it. You don't know why the rabbi's doing it, but there's a reason. So trust Jesus. Trust that Jesus is doing something for a reason and do what he does, because if not, you're going to miss the lesson. That's great. Now, my my question is, do you do that kind of thing when you take groups over there? Maybe it might be. It's a, it's a top secret, but yeah, I, I may do. I may do similar things. All right. Well, uh, we are at the end of our time. Um, my last question for you: You know, we both share a passion for discipleship and disciple making. Um, are you learning anything about discipleship or disciple making in our context today? Um, I think I'm growing. I, you know, it's been a long time since I'd gotten and dug into any discipleship or methods or any of that kind of stuff type study for me. What I think I'm learning the most is just growing in my own maturity to realize that it was never really about the method that I might use or the formula. I used to get really wound up about that kind of stuff. Um, and, and as I grow and I mature, it's much more about knowing knowing Jesus first and foremost knowing my students or those that I'm discipling second and bringing those two worlds together and trying to prayerfully be aware of what Jesus wants to do in that space. And uh, there's some humility that comes with, with that. And it's been a good, it's been a good learning curve for me. The book asking better questions of the Bible by Marty Solomon will officially be released on February 7th, but you can pre-order your copy on Amazon today. 
It's a must read for any disciple who wants to gain a greater clarity on who God is and what it means to follow God in these uncertain times. You can also find out more about Marty Solomon at martysolomon.com. This is the Gospel Addict Podcast. A Gospel Addict is, is a believer who acknowledges that they need Jesus just as much today as the day they first trusted him, and who believes that the good news about Jesus is the best news ever. Are you a Gospel Addict, Marty? I'd say yes to that. I'm Greg Bryan, and I'm a Gospel Addict. I'm Marty Solomon, and I'm a Gospel Addict. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Gospel Addict Podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospeladdictpodcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our next episode, and remember, on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace, and on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace. See you next time.